Okay, so the reading's on page 649, and uh, we're going to be uh, reading Amos chapter 5, verse 1, and then, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, verse 1 all the way through, and 6 uh, down to 7. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out, a thousand strong for Israel, will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out, a hundred strong, will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire, it will devour. And Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkness day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in the, in the court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many your offences and how great your sins you oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be a wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? 
I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifice and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samurai. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalmeh and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? Put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie of bed on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowl fill and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Our second reading tonight is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, and that's on page 850 in your Bibles. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer feel guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. David Sam. It's hot, isn't it? Feel free to do this if you need to. Won't put me off. 
Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Paul. Uh, we're working through the book of Amos. It's a hot day. It's a hard passage. So uh, let me pray. Father, we, we want to know you better. We want to understand uh, your character. We want to know your heart. Uh, Lord, we long to know how you would have us live. Father, forgive us for times when we think we know best. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, uh, to hear it clearly. Lord, I pray that you would, as a church, help us to respond in obedience and faith. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would trust you because you are good. You know all things. And so, Lord, please speak to us now through your word and by your spirit. Look at Amos 5 and 6, it's on page uh, 649 of your Bibles. I want to begin by asking you the question, uh, what do you hate in life? What kind of things do you hate in life? I hate uh, units without air conditioners. Uh, I hate peas. I hate sweet corn. I hate raisins. In fact, I hate all small foods. Give me big foods, not small foods. Uh, I hate garlic. Actually, no, I like garlic, but garlic hates me. Uh, what kind of things in life do you hate? What are the little things in life that you really go, ugh? Here are some things that I also really hate in a more serious way. I hate racism. I hate injustice. I hate murder, I hate child abuse, I hate rape, I hate oppression. Surely they're the the things where you see them and it's right, there's something inside of you just wells up and you go, that is wrong. I hate that. What about this question? It's on the screen. What does God hate? What does God hate? And I hope you'd say uh, God hates oppression and God hates murder and God hates rape and God hates greed uh, and God hates injustice and God hates racism and child abuse. Of course God hates all those things. But I wonder how many of you are thinking God hates pride. God hates hypocrisy. God hates complacency. God hates pretense. See, they're they're all these sort of the more subtle sins, the more deceitful sins that that we can keep hidden. Hypocrisy, pride, complacency, arrogance, pretense. They are much more subtle, they're more deceitful, but they're the things looking at tonight. And God hates them. Tonight's sermon is a very hard sermon to preach and it's a hard sermon to hear. Because in Amos 5 and 6 you, you get a glimpse into the heart of God and into the heart of God's people. And we meet a people, God's people, who they felt secure. And they felt comfortable. 
and they felt at ease. Hey, we're God's people. We're precious to God. We're God's treasured possession. Uh, we've got the law. We know the law. We read the law. We recite the law. We, we sing praises to God. And hey, actually, we're pretty cool. We're the, the it gathering at the moment. We're successful. Just come to our gathering. It's a great place to hang out. Israel, God's people, thought they were comfortable and thought they were successful. And God looks at them and he says, I hate your pride. I hate your arrogance. I hate your pretense. I hate your hypocrisy. I abhor it all. Because you're not really meeting in my name at all. You're there, but I'm not there. And that's why this sermon is so hard to preach, because I've squirmed as I've prepared it, and I've squirmed as I thought of me individually and us as a church, because it's all a bit too close to the bone. But God speaks a really hard word, and it's the most loving thing you can do to say the hard things to people. When you spot a problem... And you warn of the consequences and you want people to change. It's the most loving thing to do to preach a hard word to them. And that's what God did to his people, to Israel, through the prophet Amos in the year 760 BC. And Amos sang a song. He sang a song to God's people. Now, if you were going to sing a song to God's people, what kind of song would you sing to them? How about an upbeat Praise song. Woohoo! Let's celebrate. We, we are God's people once. Is that what God's singing to them? Look at verse 1. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this, this lament. They're expecting an upbeat praise song, but what they get is a lament or a dirge or a, a funeral song. And as you listen to this message, I want you to imagine a lone trumpeter playing the last post. Amos is preaching and in the background you just got fall on his virgin Israel never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. And you're supposed to feel the sadness and and Amos is weeping and grieving as he, he tells these people, people who, who think that everything is great. He says, no, it's not great because God's about to judge you. Uh, see, these people, just flick over to verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, they're longing for the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. These are people who, who knew their Bibles. They knew there was a first day. And they knew there was a last day called the day of the Lord. They knew that history wasn't some cycle repeating itself. That God was at work, seated on his throne, working out his purposes. They're heading for a day called Judgment Day, the day of the Lord, when God would step into history and vindicate his people and defeat his enemies. They knew that. Uh, they'd written books on it. And they're looking forward to that day. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. 
It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't that day of the Lord be darkness, not light? They think they're safe. And you can imagine them running and running and running away from the lion, and there's a bear there. <sighs> and so they run and they run and they run, and they, they're, they're home, they're in their house, and they, they slam the door and they put their arm on the wall, and there's a snake there. He's just mocking them. He's saying, you think you're so safe. You're looking forward to the day, but you're not safe at all. Because Judgment Day will be a day of terror for you. In fact, God has already judged you. God has already judged his people. The sentence has been passed. Did you spot the tone of chapter 5, verse 2? Just flick back to it. It's all written in the past tense. Fallen is virgin Israel. Virgin Israel, because her death was premature, her potential was never realized. She's helpless, she's vulnerable. Fallen is Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. No, says Amos. You might think you're okay, but it's just all pretend, it's all show. And as you read these chapters, you just get death and destruction time and time and time again. So chapter 5, verse 16, there'll be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in public squares. The farmers will be summoned to weep and mourn as to wail. They'll be wailing in the vineyards, but I will pass through your midst. 5, verse 27, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. 6, verse 7, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. 6, verse 8, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor I hate the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I would deliver up the city. They thought they were safe. They thought they were God's people. And God says, you're so mistaken. I'm about to judge you. I'm about to send you into exile. I'm about to destroy you. A newspaper once uh, published the obituary of Mark Twain. Except he was still alive. They published it too early. And Mark Twain is sitting there reading his own obituary. And so he, he sends a cable to the newspaper editor. He says this. He says, friends, the report of my death was a slight exaggeration. <laughs> and you can imagine Israel saying that. God's people, no, God, death? We're alive. We're well. Look at our gatherings. We're successful. We're the it people. We're the it church. And God says, no, I've spoken. You're about to go into exile. And God is the one who's going to do it. 5 verse 17, I will pass through your midst, just like he did at the Exodus. 5 verse 27, I will send you into exile. Now this was no empty threat. Uh, just 40 years after this chapter was written, after this dirge was sung, uh, in the year 721 BC, the great Assyrians, the mighty Assyrians, marched into Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city, they captured the people, they killed people, they took God's people out of the land into exile, and just a few, just a tiny, tiny remnant was left. A mighty, mighty, mighty Israel, who felt so secure, who felt so at ease, they were proud, look at us, look at us, look at us, God loves us, we're God's people. And yet God destroyed them. Friends, as you read the Old Testament, please remember two things. Remember, Israel was not a secular state. They weren't just any nation. Israel were God's people. 
and God is exposing the arrogance and the pride and the false security of his people who are pretending to worship God. So who are the Israel today? He's not writing this message to the world out there. Who are God's people? Who are Israel today? His church. Us. Please don't read the the Old Testament individualistically. As it's all about you. It's not just about you. It's about us. God's people gathered together. Please don't read it as though it's about the world out there. It's about us. His people. God's people today. Number one. Number two. Always read the Old Testament through the lens called Calvary. Always read the Old Testament through the person called Jesus Christ who changes everything. We're going to come on to him later. But tonight, God is warning his people, his church, against pride and hypocrisy and arrogance, those deceitful hidden sins. Because listen carefully, just because, just because people gather in a building and open a Bible and sing songs does not necessarily mean they really know God and love God and are worshipping God. It's entirely possible to meet, to gather, to sing, to pray, to preach, to hear, and have no relationship with your Creator God. And that's the warning tonight. Two warnings for you. First one is a warning against pride or false security. What is pride? Pride is when we think we are somebody's. Pride is when we think or we desire to usurp God's position and to refuse to acknowledge that we are totally dependent on him for everything and every breath and every minute of every day. Pride is when we think that we have earned or deserve God's favor. And that was God's people then. See, if you'd asked the Israelites, they'd have said, Ah, everything is wonderfully well. Uh, We're affluent. We're successful. We're we're, we're well connected with church and we're so secure. We're somebody's. Because that's how they're presented in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, God's place. Woe to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, God's place. Woe to you, you feel at ease, you feel secure, but God's verdict is so different to their feelings. What does God say down in chapter 6, verse 8? I abhor the pride of Jacob. I detest his fortresses. I will deliver up his city and everything in it. Pride is, as John Stott said, more than just the first of the seven deadly sins, it's the essence of sin itself. Where we put ourselves at the center, our achievements, our success, and God hates it. How do you know that these people were proud? You could tell it by the way they lived. See, God's people were supposed to, to love others and to care for those in need. And to hate injustice. But God's people here, they're just sitting back in their mansions. Verse 4, they're lying on beds inlaid with ivory and they lounge on their couches. And whilst the average Israelites would eat meat maybe once a year as a luxury, oh, these people are 
dining on choice lambs and fattened calves in the, in the greatest restaurants. And verse 5, they're strumming around their harps like King David. They're sitting back in their palaces, on their couches, eating the meat, playing their musical instrument. Uh, verse 6, drinking wine by the bowlful. Nice, massive red wine glasses that holds the finest of clarets. And they've got the finest of lotions imported from overseas. Their exfoliation creams and their moisturizers. But verse 6, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Do you spot it? You're so obsessed with your own luxurious living church that you don't bat an eyelid when one of your neighboring tribes suffers loss. You're so busy enjoying yourself and thinking you're somebody's that you don't notice when the world out there is suffering oppression and corruption and God's name is being dishonored. Remember Hamlet? In Hamlet, Claudius is, is reveling in luxury, completely oblivious to the fact that the, all the troops are outside, marshal ready to attack. That's God's warning. That's God's people, whining and dining, oblivious to the reality that they're under threat of exile. They're more concerned about eating the latest restaurant than they are about being godly. They're more concerned about saving for the new leisure couch, leather couch than they are about giving money to the poor and needy. They're more concerned about their fake tans and their massages than they are concerned about injustice in the world. <laughs> See, there's bribery and corruption and oppression and sexual immorality. And what's the church doing about it? What are God's people doing about it? Absolutely nothing. Sitting back and enjoying the life of luxury. Because, <laughs> hey, we're somebody, we're God's people, we're precious, we're special. We're okay. Somebody said that the gods of the Assyrians occupied the hearts of God's people long before the armies of the Assyrians occupied their streets and towns. And that's so true. The gods of the world occupy our hearts long, 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 long before uh, we see it as people go into exile and just wander away. Pride. Let me ask you, Ask us. Are we a proud church? Do we think we're somebodies? You can spot a proud church by what they talk about. What they tweet about, Twitter about or tweet about. What's on their Facebook pages. Do we talk more about ourselves than we do about God and Jesus and his words? Do we talk more about all the restaurants we've eaten at and all the movies we've seen and the, the concerts that we've been to, thinking that we're special and important, than we do talk about godliness and holiness and purity? Do we talk about our fortresses, the new building that will transform our church and the new programs that will make us famous? Or do we talk about Jesus and his glory and, and his grace and his beauty? Are we like, I think it's Kimmy, who just says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, pride is the worst viper in the human heart. The most hidden secret, deceitful of all lusts. It's a danger for every church. And God says, chapter 6, verse 8, I abhor the pride of God's people, Jacob. You know, when our, when our church website talks more about our history 
and our achievements and our programs than it does talk about Jesus Christ and the cross and the glory of God when we've slipped into pride. When our evangelism course starts to present Christianity as a lifestyle option and not just actually submitting to the Lordship of Christ. When we start to rate churches a bit like you know, a five-star award, we rate it on marketing and branding and music and image. What about God and God's grace and God's glory? What about Him? God hates pride. And I'm sure the Israelites would have been stunned, like the student who thinks he's written an excellent essay and gets an, gets an F. Are we proud? Second danger. Ooh. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. If the first was a little close to the bone, be prepared to squirm some more. It's a hot night, it's a hot passage. God says, stop playing at meetings. Look at chapter 5, verse 21, and look what God says. Look at the words that God uses. God says, I love it when you get together. I love it when you stand and you sing my praises. I love it when you offer sacrifice. Is that what God says? He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't accept them. Although you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to music of your harps. I hate, I despise, I can't stand, I won't accept, I won't listen to. He says, oh, you have all these feast days. You have uh, Passover and unleavened bread and tabernacles. You have Christmas, you have Easter. You know what? I hate them. You have these assemblies. These, these massive gatherings, these conventions, these conferences, uh, these wiki meetings. But you know what? I can't stand them. Oh, you bring me burnt offerings, you bring me grain offerings, you bring me fellowship offerings. But it's just a sham. You have communion and prayer meetings and tithing and servings. Do you know what? I hate them. As for your singing, wow, your band is truly awesome. And the songs you sing, oh, the words are, are pretty amazing. And you stand there and you sing songs and I say, shut up. It's just noise. And you can imagine God's people saying, but, but we met every week. I know, I hated it. But we sang all these songs. Yep, I know, I hated it. I hated your cars by candlelight. I hated your Katuma conventions. I wouldn't accept your prayer meetings. It's just noise, noise, noise. Surely God loves it when we get together. God loves it when we sing. Yeah, he does. God loves it when we gather together and we worship him. So what is wrong? It's not that God hates worship or hates gatherings or hates festival. Did you spot an important word? I'll read it again. Verse 21. I, dis- I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies, even though you bring me burnt offerings. I will not listen to the music of your harps, aware of the noise of your songs. There was something about the Israelites and, and their meetings that, that was utterly obnoxious to God. And here it is. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. How can they stand in church and sing 
about God's justice when chapter 5, verse 7, they've turned justice into bitterness and they've cast righteousness to the ground. How can they, they stand in church and pray prayers about the poor and the needy when chapter 5, verse 11, you trample on the poor and force them to give you grain? You see, it's utter hypocrisy. Oh, sure, uh, you know how to stand and you know how to look. Uh, you know all the moves, you know, you can do this or you can do this. It doesn't matter. What I really hate, says God, is when your heart, when your heart is so, so, so far away from me. It's just an act. You're just playing games. The word hypocrisy just means play acting. You get into character, play the part like an actor on the stage. You know what to say, where to stand, how to look, how to feel, but just a performance. So what does God say in verse 24? Let justice flow on like a river. Ongoing, continual justice in your life. Let righteousness flow like a never-failing stream. Not sporadically, but always. Because true worship, my friends, is actually really, really simple. What is true worship? You love God. And you love others. That's all God asks of you. That you love God and you love others. He doesn't care whether you've got a drum kit or an organ or a building with pews or with chairs. He doesn't care about that stuff. He wants you to love him with all your heart, whole soul, heart, soul, mind and strength and love others as yourself. And the issue I've been grappling with this week is this. Are we just playing at church? Are we just playing at being church? How can we, how can we stand in church and sing songs about God's justice? And then you walk out into the world and you don't bat an eyelid at the oppression and injustice going on all around you in Sydney and around the world. How can we say amen to prayers about, about living a godly life and you walk straight out that door and it has no impact on your life at all? You're just going to sleep with your boyfriend, sleep with your girlfriend, get drunk down the pub, bully the person at work, lie and slander and be greedy and it has no impact on your life. How can we stand here and say things and sing, sing things uh, with our eyes closed, with our hands raised and it has no impact in the way that you live 24-7 because that's the issue does your faith change your behavior? See, God doesn't care what we do. He wants this. He wants your heart. He wants a heart that loves him. He wants a heart that believes in him and trusts him and adores him and wants a heart that lives out what it claims to believe. And the question is, is church just a social club for you? Just escapism? A nice thing to do on a hot summer's day. Does God have your heart? Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. People often say to me, oh, thanks for church. I really enjoyed it. One person said to me last night after preaching this sermon, I was thinking, enjoyed it? <laughs> oh, it made me feel good. Is that why we gather? To feel good? No, we gather to worship God and to bring him the glory. 
We just sang the song, I, I see a near revival. What does that mean? What does it mean to see a near revival? More people in our pews? Build a bigger building? No. Revival is when our lives are radically, radically different. J.R. Green said this, religious revival in the 18th century carried to the hearts of the people a fresh spirit of moral zeal which purified their literature and their manners. It brought a new philanthropy which reformed their prisons. It abolished the slave trade and gave the first impulse to popular education. What God wants for revival is you and I who love Jesus so much that our lives are radically, radically different. It impacts the way that we live out there. That's revival. Radical repentance, walking God's ways. Are we more concerned about filling the bums on the pews than what's going on here? Otherwise, that's hypocrisy. They're the two dangers, pride and hypocrisy. And I hope we're squirming. And that's why the words of chapter 5, verse 5, are like music to our ears. It's not the last post being played. It's almost like you've got... And then you've got... Hallelujah! Hallelujah! This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Hallelujah! 5 verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. Turn over chapter 5 verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Israel. Uh, Do you spot the irony? What is the only way to avoid destruction? What's the only way to be saved? Seek refuge in the one who has the power to destroy you. You see, the temptation when you hear about God's judgment is that you run and you run and you run away from him. He says, no, no, if you want to be saved, run to me. They're very five, five very easy words. Seek the Lord and live. Please take that away with you this week. Seek the Lord and live. Seek him. What does it mean to seek God? I think sometimes we think seeking God is a bit like hide and seek. God is hiding somewhere. To seek him means that you you set your mind on him. You devote your time to understanding him and his character. You make a choice, a deliberate choice. Not to seek the wisdom of the world, but to turn your eyes onto Jesus, onto him, and to his word. Uh, to seek him is that, is that you depend on him, not on yourself. In the good times you thank him, in the hard times you depend on him, and you cry out to him. Uh, to seek him means that you have a deliberate, daily discipline of spending time with him. And you choose to do that because he's everything to you. To seek him is more than just an intellectual thing. It's actually an action thing. Because verse 14 tells you to seek good, not evil. 
that you may live. Seek God that you may live. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Because to seek God is to seek good and not evil. Do you spot it? To seek God means that you seek good, not evil. To seek God means that you actually choose deliberately to do the right thing and to turn your back on the wrong thing. To seek God is that radical mark of repentance, of, of no to that and yes to this. And God is calling the Israelites and his church to seek him. To devote time and energy and intellect and that brain-straining effort and to make choices every day to look into his eyes and not the eyes of the world. To seek him. He says in verse 4, 5, Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, they were just, they were just worship centers that... Israel had made up to, to, to make it easier than going to Jerusalem. He says, don't run to those places, run to the person called Jesus Christ. Uh, don't run to a system, run to a saviour. Don't run to rituals or religion, run to God himself. Seek him. Turn your eyes onto him. Who's this Lord that you seek? He's a pretty powerful Lord, isn't he? 5 verse 8, he's the one who made the stars, Pleiades and the Orion. The one who just flung them into space. He's the one who turns blackness into dawn every day. He's the one who says to the sun, get up and we have light. Uh, he's the one who has the power uh, to pour the waters over the face of the land. He controls the tides, high tide and low tide and the tsunamis and the floods. He controls it all. He's the one that you seek. He is so powerful. He is so sovereign. He controls everything in this world and he knows you intimately. He's the one that you seek. Seek the God of justice, the God of holiness, the God of redemption, the God of, of judgment, the one who has the power to crush you, and yet, yet when you run to him, he just wraps his arms around you and welcomes you. He's the one to seek. So why would you bother seeking him? Why would you run into the arms of somebody who has the power to destroy you? Because the promise is there. The promise is there in verse 14. Seek God, seek good, not evil, that you may live, that you may have life and life to the full, that you may stand on judgment day, that judgment day will not be a day of darkness, but a day of light for you. And then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. It won't be talk anymore, it will be reality. Because he'll live with you and he'll dwell with us as a church. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps, does that word uh, surprise you? Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy. If you seek him, perhaps he'll have mercy. It shouldn't surprise you. Because God doesn't have to show us mercy. God doesn't owe us any favours. Mercy isn't our right. God isn't some mechanical mercy dispenser where you know run to him pop in the coin and out pops mercy no no if you think you deserve mercy then you slipped into pride straight away right there there's a story of a a young mother who came to the feet of napoleon and this uh, mum's son was about to be executed and she came to napoleon's feet and she begged him she said napoleon Please have mercy on my son. And Napoleon looked at the mother and said, 
But why should I have mercy? He doesn't deserve it. And the mother, with tears in her eyes, said, well, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. We don't deserve mercy. But we need mercy. And that's why we cry out for mercy. But you know what? When you seek the Lord, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his beautiful face, it's almost like God has got a, a black marker pen and crossed out that word, perhaps. Because if you sought your refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've looked at the cross of Calvary and said, Jesus died for me, then you can say the Lord God Almighty has had mercy on me. And he will be with me. Because Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I, I will give you rest. Jesus says, anyone who believes in me has crossed over from death to life. Friends, what's the way to live? What's the only way to live is to, to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. To look at the Lord Jesus Christ in all his beauty, in all his glory, in all his humility, in all his obedience, to seek his face. And to say thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We're a proud people. Yeah, we're hypocrites. We deserve destruction. We deserve exile. But for those of us who have sought the face of Jesus, it's like the last post has been switched to the Alleluia Chorus. Because we will live. We live now. And we'll live for all eternity.